Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 49 of Daffy's Roundtable. On this episode, I'm joined by my first Australian guest, Coop of Coop's Reptiles. Join us as we discuss Australian herpetoculture, keeping reptiles outside, and finding reptiles in the wild. We also talk about blue tongue skinks, Bigurnia, and Boyd's Forest Dragons, one of my personal favorites. But before we do that, allow me to thank Exoterra for sponsoring this podcast and making this episode possible. Exoterra makes quality products for our pet reptiles to make them feel at home. Okay, let's get into this week's conversation with Coop of Coop's Reptiles. Coop, hello. <laughs> Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? Thank you for coming on. Oh, no worries at all. It's, it's quite easy for me. It's three o'clock in the afternoon. I'm relaxing. I don't know what time it is for you over there in Canada. <laughs> It's uh, it's eleven thirty, so still 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 a fairly good time. Still a fairly good time. Okay, nice. Um, I'm I'm a I'm a night owl anyway, so it it doesn't matter. Um, uh, awesome. First of all, let me say I'm very excited to do this. Uh, very excited to chat with you, and um, I'm very excited to hear the coop story. So let's start there. Uh, how did you get into reptile keeping? Where did it all start? Yeah, well, obviously living here in Australia, we have no shortage of reptiles. So I was originally born um, up in North Queensland, um, where it's uh, quite humid and warm up there. Lots of reptiles running around all over the place. We used to get snakes in our um, our backyard, trying to steal birds and things. My dad used to keep birds. And um, I vividly remember I was only a couple of years of age and I was in the front yard playing, doing whatever you do as a kid. And I saw some little um, gamut lizards. I believe they were knobby dragons or some sort of two-line dragon and I thought it was the coolest thing ever and um, ended up catching a couple with dad and um, keeping them for a while and then that obviously evolved into turtles and snakes and all sorts of other stuff whatever we could find uh, while we were up there and then um, after I think I was about seven years old we moved down to where I am now and uh, obviously had to leave all those behind and uh, just sort of picked it up again from here with everything that was local here and um Back then, I didn't know you had to have a reptile license or anything like that. So as time's gone on, I've um, obviously moved on all those other things. And well, mostly like when I was young, like a lot of us when we're young here in Australia and we catch things out of the wild, they don't always survive. So uh, that was one way that they uh, sort of thinned out. But then uh, obviously got the license and I've uh, been going strong ever since. And obviously uh, it's a never-ending addiction. Awesome. Okay, so... Jumping off something you just said there, um, reptile license or keeper's license, uh, maybe let's first start off with that. Uh, the laws in Australia are very different than the laws here, obviously. Uh, so can you kind of break down for us how they work? You guys can only keep um, species from Australia, is that correct? Yes, uh, th- there is one or two exceptions of things that are maybe in an offshore island off Australia, like um, Emerald Tree Monitors are one, depending on what state you're in. But for the most part, yeah, it's only Australian natives that you can keep. And uh, it goes a step further depending on what state you're actually living in. So each state has its own individual rules. And uh, some are a bit more relaxed than others. There's some particular states where you can only keep the animals that are actually native to that state, not even anything else in Australia. So it's some places are very, very restricted. Uh, but yeah, across the board, typically uh, in most places, you need some sort of license and uh, permitting for certain animals here in the in this country, yeah. Awesome. And, and and what what uh, state are you in? I'm in New South Wales, so it's not too bad here. Um, we do have quite a, a decently diverse uh, species list of things we can keep. Um, it's kind of got a tiered system as well. So you've got your, your basic animals, like your, your bearded dragons, your 
your Simpsons, Pythons, Carpet Pythons, that sort of thing. And then you move up the levels and things are more rare on that class two license. Um, like a few things I've got here, like the Agony Depressor, their R2, something a bit more less common that your beginner sort of level person's not really going to probably do that well with. And then as you go up further than that, you get into your Venomous and other special things like that. And do you need uh, different permits to be able to keep things like Venomous and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, so it, um, it essentially, for the basic license, you'll get that first. All you have to do is pay some money and they'll send you a license and then you can keep stuff. And then from from there, you basically have to sort of prove yourself in order to level up each time. So in order to go from the basic to the next level up, you need to have had an animal for a certain amount of time and shown you can care for it properly. And then you can progress. And then to get to Venomous, you have to do certain courses and get signed off and things like that to actually uh, get the permit. As in New South Wales anyway, other states, uh, things that can be easier or more difficult, just depending on um, their specific regulations. Okay, very, very cool. Um, and, and, and then you guys also are, well, it's, it's Australia won't export animals out, correct? Or reptiles specifically? No, um, so nothing goes out and nothing comes in either. So it's uh, what, like, yeah. Um, is there um, a reason behind why this, like why the rules are like this way? Uh, well, they say it's for, for protecting native wildlife. They're trying to prevent um, poaching and smuggling and things like that. So um, that's another reason why we are we have to have a license in this state is because the natural wildlife is um, protected. So you can't go out and just catch something or anything like that. It's all got to be captive bred. Obviously, way back in the past, it was all wild caught. But uh, once those established animals came in, it's sort of uh, illegal from there on to uh, actually catch anything. So... And then another big thing too is um, invasive species risks. So we've obviously had some devastating things here in Australia with the, the cane toad and other invasive plants and all sorts are just wrecking the environment. So um, they're trying to prevent all that sort of stuff as well, which is, is understandable if you think about it and the impact it's had, but um, just make it a bit frustrating when you're an Australian keeper and you, you know, looking over to you guys and keep chameleons and all sorts of other cool, crazy animals. But um, we have some cool stuff here. So it's, it's, it's good at least. Yeah, I think, well, you guys have all the cool stuff there. <laughs> um, some of the coolest species, I think, are not, not I think, I'm sure, are, are coming out of uh, Australia. But even for us, it's 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 almost the other way around. Like, we do have some Australian species, like uh, bearded dragons, of course, are everywhere and, and things mm. like that. But but then you have uh, Boyd's forest dragons, for example, that are almost impossible to find. I, I don't think I only know of a couple of pairs here in Canada. So it's... Um, it's very interesting that, that, yeah, it's always like the grass is always greener on the other side, I guess. Huh? <laughs> um, cool. Yeah, okay. Right. Uh, so, so maybe, yeah, I don't, I, obviously I, I guess you, you're keeping quite a, quite a variety of species. So maybe not all of them, but can you list some of the cooler species that you're currently uh, working with? Yeah. So I've got quite a few different things here. It's a bit more um, all over the place at the moment, but uh, of course I've got quite a few blue tongue species. I've always liked blue tongues and, very lucky here that i can keep a lot of them outside so that's what part of the reason i have so many uh we have got the blotched blue tongues i've got my centralians and my western blue tongues just next to me here and uh, i've got one eastern blue tongue as well and then more of the weirdest stuff behind me here i've got a uh a gillens monitor if you know what they are a varanus gillenai they're really cool yeah. i've obviously got my gurnia depressor uh, my one snake which is a pygmy python another really cool species that's Again, not too common, and I, I really, really enjoy it. They're the smallest python in the world. 
Uh, I've got a couple of turtles. I've really been getting into my turtles these uh, this last year or so. Um, so I've got a yeah. few of them out, outside too. And what else have I got? I've got my obviously my Boyd's Forest Dragon. Yes. <laughs> I was going to so, say you're forgetting my favorite one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I think that's I think that's everything. Yeah, yeah. It's, it becomes hard to remember sometimes. <laughs> that's really cool. See, like for example, turtles is another thing. We don't really have um, many turtles up here in Canada at all. Uh, yeah. Very, very hard to find uh, keepers or even tortoises. You already answered the, are you allowed to go out and collect animals, which obviously you said you can't, but do you still go out and uh, go herping uh, every now and then? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So uh, <laughs> everywhere is pretty good for uh, finding stuff here in Australia. You know, sometimes depending on where you live, you get some things just crawl into your backyard. Like we occasionally get red belly, black snakes, blue tongues, a bunch of little skinks, obviously. But um, yeah, as you move down the coast from where I live, you can get quite a few different species. So We'll typically go out, me and a few friends, and um, road cruise at night in some certain spots and see lots of cool things. You know, a lot of people overseas love diamond pythons and death adders, tiger snakes, that sort of thing. You see all that stuff. But um, I did recently actually go on a trip to Alice Springs. I still need to put out some videos from that uh, right yeah. in the center of Australia, finding bearded dragons and uh, monitor, uh, sand monitors and things like that and um, a bunch of cool little stuff that I really enjoy. So um yeah, I do like to get out and try and herb as much as I can. It's obviously an amazing place to do all that sort of stuff. But um, yeah. just buying the time is the hard part. <laughs> For sure. And and this is going to be a reoccurring theme. Um, and I'm probably going to say this a bunch of times on this episode, but jealous. I'm very, very <laughs> jealous. Um, but yeah, okay, that's 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 very, very cool. Um, so so one, one of the things I've seen, um, you mentioned some from some of your videos in the past, um, is that you were doing some research on some of those species as well. Um, could you maybe tell us about that for a minute? Yeah, so uh, obviously straight out of school, I went to university and um, did my undergraduate degree there. And while I was there, I actually realized that um, on campus, there was a research group uh, called the Lizard Lab, which uh, is run by Martin Whiting. He's a um, amazing herpetologist and uh, basically, you know, sent him a message and got involved with some volunteer work, looking after the animals and then eventually helping with some of the studies and went on to be employed as a uh, research assistant as well. So we looked at quite a few different species, a lot of uh, native Australian skinks from the sort of Sydney region. And um, yeah, just working on a lot of different stuff with them. So originally I started out um, working on a blue tongue project, literally looking at why is a blue tongue's tongue blue. And uh, you know, the original sort of theory is obviously that um, they stick it out and blue kind of looks like a poisonous color in nature, uh, which it still probably has some truth in it as well. But we also uh, realized based on a, um, oh, what's the word of it? A, um, basically it reads ultraviolet colors, uh, a sensor essentially. We put that on the tongue and uh, we could see it was highly ultraviolet reflective. So to bird's vision, which is one of their main predators, they, they can see ultraviolet. So when a blue tongue actually sticks out that tongue, it's like a, bright flash of light which uh essentially scares the bird or startles it and uh gives it time to escape or maybe you know, prevents the bird from trying to eat it so there's a lot more going on under the surface than you'd expect so that was pretty cool to see that's very and interesting then, yeah yeah and then we also did some work with some other smaller skink species like white skinks and um black rock skinks and uh looking at family dynamics so we'd obviously collect some animals they'd have babies and then we'd see how those babies interact with each other with their mothers cool. um all that sort of stuff um i'm not exactly sure what all happened from that i still have to actually hit up the person to uh, get the results but um yeah. 
the uh, one of the main things I was actually working on was another species called a three-toed skink. Now they're very interesting. They're very common along this part of Australia where I live, but you don't really see them because they live most of their life under the ground. But they're a reptile that can have eggs or it could have live birth, depending on uh, which population it's living in. So wow. quite a strange animal in the reptile world to uh, be able to have that sort of choice. And um, we basically looked at how climate change and other varying factors could potentially affect uh, their survival and their reproduction in the future. So I believe uh, the ones closer to the coast where it's warmer, they often had eggs uh, because okay. of, you know it's a lot easier for eggs to survive in a place where it's warm, whereas the ones that yeah, lived in more cold areas usually held on and have had live birth pretty much. So means that they could get access to warmer spots and move around and actually develop those young inside them uh, to survive in that cooler environment. So very, very cool stuff. And um, yeah, very cool species to work with. And then uh, just before I left that job, uh, due to COVID, a lot of a um, lot of funding and things got messed around. So I ended up having to leave. But uh, we were actually working on some bearded dragons as well, teaching them um, social learning. So we had a whole bunch of them outside in all these enclosures. You can check a video I've got on my channel about it. It's really cool. And essentially, we're going to teach them some, a task to only a few of them. We're going to release those ones out uh, to be with all the rest of them. And then they would obviously do that task in front of all the others. And we're going to see if the other ones picked up on it and actually started performing the task without having to be trained. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's cool to test all the... Uh, cognition of reptiles and everything going on with them and it's amazing what you can find that's very very cool but yeah. that that last one you said it never ended up uh you know it never ended up finishing it right yeah no i think i think it's still ongoing at the moment but um okay. yeah it's uh it's very very cool stuff <laughs> yeah that is very cool stuff and 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 then even just being in a position like that where you get to travel and see all these reptiles i mean you can go herping but when you're doing mm. the research and you're there multiple like on multiple occasions, you're seeing different behaviors every time you're out. It's, um, that's yeah, really, really, cool. really cool. So you finished doing that. What are you currently doing? Uh, so now I'm actually a zookeeper. So uh, during uh, just after I finished studying at uni and then while I was doing that um, work with the lab, I was also um, starting to do a little bit of work in the zoo industry as well. And as the stuff with the, uh, the science stuff went away, the zookeeping just became more and more. And uh, now I'm doing that full time. So, yeah, zookeeper life. <laughs> awesome. And and is it? Uh, are you working with all sorts of animals? Is it reptile zookeeping uh, mostly? Uh, so I do work with quite a few things, but I am a reptile keeper. So day to day, reptiles are pretty much my main thing. It's, it's my whole life. I spend <laughs> eight hours a day at work with reptiles, and I come home and do another couple of hours work with reptiles. Oh, reptiles. Non stop. Yeah. What do you think? Some of the biggest differences between seeing um, reptile behavior in zoo type versus home types home type setups are if if yeah, any at all yeah it's interesting because the, the perk of a zoo is obviously they can have much larger enclosures yeah which, of course yeah, some people say enclosure size doesn't matter but for me personally i think you have so much more room for activities and enrichment and just interesting yeah. things and uh, more things for the animals to do, which is, of course, great for them in their captive lives. You know, keeping their brains stimulated and working is obviously great. So um, yeah, there is quite a few differences. Obviously, you get to see more wide range of behaviors, obviously, as well. Um, so, yeah, it is quite different. But um, 
you know, you just got to do as best as you can uh, at home, I suppose, and try and make things as big as possible. Yeah. And, and then following that, do you think that reptile keepers are maybe setting up uh, more accurate naturalistic setups for the reptiles because of because you're keeping like native species and you can kind of go out and see them? Or do you think that, I don't know, it can be replicated off pictures and it doesn't really matter? Uh, what do you think? Well, yeah. So here in Australia, it's it's I reckon it is a bit easier or for anywhere. If you're keeping a species and you live you know, within a few hours or whatever of its natural range, it's going to be so much easier to get an actual visual representation of what it's actually living in. And you can even source some materials from its environment. So, okay, yeah. yeah. So here in Australia, like oftentimes keepers like myself and a lot of my friends and things will go out and, you know, collect some hollow logs and all sorts of things like that, like right from the environment. So uh, obviously not trying to destroy any habitats or anything like that but um sure. it's all the natural stuff that we would be the animal would naturally be living on so it's it's much more real compared to uh overseas like it's probably hard for you to find a, a hollow gum tree branch or something you know if you wanted to keep a bearded dragon or anything like that so it's not yeah. quite the same but i don't know how much it strictly matters to the animals that i just like the uh, authentic look if you know what i mean <laughs> no 100 it's interesting because so like you said uh well, first of all, it's probably impossible for me to find the hollow <laughs> anything yeah. from Australia. But um, it, it's just because, like, over here, there's almost a fear of going out and collecting, like, wood and anything from outside and the, the fear of pests. And even if anybody does do it, they're, like, boiling it and cooking it and sterilizing it for uh, weeks. Is that something you ever have to worry about? Or is it sort of because, again, anything that could be collected is native that it's not so much a worry? Yeah, so... I understand why you would do that a lot more overseas, especially if it's it's not an animal that comes from that specific environment you might take something from. Um, so it might have something different in it that the animal's not used to. But, you know, here in Australia, we're always keeping Australian things. So everything that we might put into an enclosure, an animal's designed Already. over millions of years to, um, you know, deal with typically. Yeah. So, I mean, some people do take it to the extreme here as well. They'll, you know, bleach rocks and cook things in the oven and stuff and that's fine if you want to do that you know i've there has been quite a few times i've brought in a hollow log or something and my enclosure's filled with ants after it that i don't know were uh, actually inside right. it but um yeah. i'll typically just give a good visual clean and the best thing really is to leave it out in the sun for a few weeks you know yeah. middle of summer out on something warm and uh most things that are living inside a rock or a log are going to vacate if they've been baking in the sun for a couple of weeks here in australia so that's the yeah. simple thing I like to do. And as long as it looks visually clean, I'm usually safe. I've never really had an issue. The only thing, like I said, is a couple ants or something like that. Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. Okay, and then on that topic, you, you and you mentioned earlier, you keep a lot of species outside. Is it just blue tongue skiing species or are you keeping other species as well? Uh, over the years, I've kept a lot of things outside. Um, like when I first moved down here and, and up in Queensland, I had a lot of different little agamids outside. I've kept bearded dragons outside here as well um blue tongues now and then also my turtles of course as well again they're a um east coast species too so they do well outside here too so um yeah it makes keeping very very easy when you got an animal from its natural sort of range uh out in your backyard it's, it's a very easy way to keep yeah well that was that was actually much so like I, you said from a different range the the tortoise is correct is that what you just uh no, so, no, they're on the east coast as well, so they're oh, perfect, perfectly adapted to this climate. Yeah, this climate. Okay, so you do kind of have to tailor. It's not like 
any species from anywhere in Australia will work well in your backyard. It kind of, you do have to tailor it to kind of your um, relative area and climate. Yeah, hundred percent. Like um, things like my Western blue tongues or my Centralian blue tongues, they come from central or Western Australia, complete opposite side of where I am. And where I am here, it gets a lot more humid than those sort of areas. So if I put them outside, they'd get a respiratory infection within a few weeks and right. it'd be pretty bad. So yeah, there's certain things that you cannot keep uh, outside depending on where you are. There's a lot of different, a lot of different climates and ranges in Australia. I think a lot of people overseas don't really recognize that, but um, it does change quite a lot throughout the country. Um, yeah. But with that said, if you set things up in a specific way, you might be able to get around that. So if I maybe put these guys on my deck with cover and they wouldn't get any rain or anything like that, then most of the year they could probably do fine out there. I've, I've kept bearded dragons in that sort of way as well. Um, you just got to really understand you know, what's going on and um, how to prevent any issues. Yeah. Um, so do you ever like, I don't know if this question even makes sense, but like, how do you set them up? Like, do you ever have any problems with escapees and how do you set it up to prevent that? Yeah. So <laughs> Because you don't really, there's no like, it's not a full on cage, right? It's almost like an open. Yeah. Well, some of them are fully enclosed, which is obviously okay. great. Uh, but then depending on the species too, like in the ones that have sort of open tops, they've just got blue tongues inside. So I've got really high walls that they can't climb up. They're not a good climbing okay. species. Right. Smooth sided walls are a big one. And uh, it's also sunk under the ground as well. So they can't dig out. So um, dig out. Okay. yeah, just those basic things. And those are the things you learn over time. Like I said, when I was younger and I um, used to just catch things um, and keep them, uh, you learn a lot of mistakes pretty quickly because uh, if your enclosure is not good enough, the animal's going to get out or something's going to happen and uh, you know not to do that again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It just seems like it's too... Um, yeah, I've never been able to keep anything outside here, so I don't know exactly how it is, but uh, it just seems like it's 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 too easy to, to make a mistake. That's, that's what, yeah. Yeah, it <laughs> I is. Don't know. These days, especially now, I like to have everything fully enclosed. Like, I don't want to take yeah. the risk anymore. Um, it's it's a lot safer like that. The only exception is my turtles, but I know nothing's going to get them. They're uh, they're big enough now where nothing's going to take them or anything like that. <laughs> oh yeah, Pre predators is another thing. I guess I didn't even think yeah. about that. Yeah, is it? Uh, I guess you said birds are blue tongue skinks predators. Um, yeah. 100%. How do you how do you prevent? Um, how do you like? What's the how do you stop birds? <laughs> yeah, well, typically a lot of these larger things that I keep, especially once they're an adult size, not much is really going to try and get them. Okay. Um, it's only when they're smaller. So I'd always keep small ones inside or in a fully enclosed thing. Um, but now, yeah, like I said, most things are going to be fully covered just to prevent anything, any potential things happening. Right. That makes sense. If you took a species, um, like one species of blue tongue skink and you raise it outside and, and the same species and you raise it inside, do you see any um, physical differences in the animals? Um, nothing too noteworthy. I've never actually, uh, oh, I, I, I have kind of done it actually. I think the ones outside are a bit stronger and they have sort of kind of a bit thicker scales due to the natural sunlight. Uh, that's just from, you know, anecdotal evidence. Um, yeah. But why I say stronger is typically if they're outdoors, they're in a larger enclosure. They got more muscle tone. They get to move around in a larger area, mm -hmm. and obviously exposure to that natural sunlight. They're typically you know bigger, fitter animals that uh, do a lot better. But um, indoors to outdoors, there's not a significant difference, I don't think, as long as they're being kept right indoors, of course. 
for sure. And and do you find that they? And I don't know if you've ever like actually uh, witnessed this, but do you find they're um, picking up random things or bugs that are coming in. Are they eating uh, things outside, or is it strictly what you're feeding them still? Oh no! If if uh, if uh, a grasshopper like... or something jumps into yeah. the enclosure, they're, they're going to go for it for sure. Okay. Yeah. And um, when when you do put them outside, the funny thing is their their behaviour does definitely change. I don't know if it's okay. the extra daylight or something that's going on, but you have a perfectly tame lizard in your hand inside, and it loves you essentially. It's like a little pet. As soon as you take it outside, it turns into a wild animal again. It'll try and bite you. It'll hiss at you. It'll just completely change. Wow. Uh, what that animal behaves like so uh when something comes into their enclosure they're going to attack it more like a wild animal than uh what you're probably used to when you see him running around inside so yeah it's a bit different in that regard yeah it's interesting i've never kept uh blue tongue skinks at all but it's almost like every time i do see one in, in an enclosure something they're almost just kind of sitting there so it's yeah. kind of hard to imagine them like hunting or trying to catch or eating something out of not yeah. a bowl but I'm not hating on blue tongue skinks, everybody. I'm just saying. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not just blue tongues, though. Like, you see it with a lot of other things as well. Like, bearded dragons will be the same. You know, they might come up to you and want, you know, you hand feed them some uh, greens or crickets or whatever, but put them outside. They'll probably run away from you. They'll try and hide. They'll try and bite you. All sorts of stuff like that. Same with turtles, too. That You know, turtles, usually if you walk into a room, they'll just swim at you in the tank trying yeah. to get food from you. You put the uh, same turtles outside. As soon as they see you, they dive down to the bottom. They don't want anything to do with you, at least for the first few months until they get used to uh, living outside. So, yeah, it's very interesting. Very, very interesting. Yeah. Have you ever seen, and you said you have seen bearded dragons in, in the in the wild, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Are so they, we, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, yeah, we get a species here locally. And then I've been and seen the ones in Alice Springs as well, the ones, the central bearded dragon. Yeah. So you have a, a species of bearded dragon locally? Yeah, the eastern bearded dragon. Do you mm -hmm. see them frequently? Not frequently, unfortunately. They, uh -huh. uh, I feel like they're a lot more common as you go a couple of hours inland. Uh, on the coast, right where I am, uh, they're quite actually a rare find these days. But when you find one, it's very, very exciting because uh, they're probably, in my opinion, they're the most impressive bearded dragon you can find. Okay. And, and it, are they... Um, are these like, you know, some species you find outside and the second they even catch a glimpse of you, they're, they're, they're gone. Are they very skittish in the wild or, um, less so? Uh, it depends how you find them. So the last one I found, uh, I put up a video of it and it was basking on a, on a branch. It was halfway up a tree. And wow. when they're sitting on a tree like that, they typically will just try and blend in. They rely on their camouflage. So I walked right up to it and I could just pick it up off the branch. But if it was on the ground, it'd probably be a bit different. It, it would know that it's exposed and it would probably dart off as soon as I came close to it. So it just depends um, in what setting they're in. Very interesting. So bearded dragons can climb. Oh, they climb all the time. Yeah, absolutely. That's so interesting. I don't think that's something that um, like I've ever heard before. Like, you know, most people even here when they set them up, they'll... they'll the maximum they're giving them is maybe like 18, 18 inches high and, and just a couple of logs and you expect them. Yeah. Like you see them basking on them, but nobody's giving them the opportunity to, or nobody that I've seen at least is giving them opportunity to actually climb. Like you said, up a tree. Are, are you like tree, tree, like human height up or? Well, uh, for example, well, that one I found in that video was about head height. And wow. then all the central bearded dragons, the ones that are all over the world, the third most popular pet in the world or whatever they say these days. Um, when I saw those in Alice Springs, all of them bar one were 
basking on a tree again probably about head height yeah wow okay yeah. even wow. even a big a big adult female that actually had some eggs inside her she was a monster animal and uh yeah she was halfway up a tree just sitting there so yeah they definitely climb a lot more than you'd expect i think they often sleep in trees as well to prevent predators from eating them during the night and things like that and and do uh is there any uh, evidence or signs of them burrowing when you're outside there um not that i've personally seen but i know they definitely do I, i've there's a guy here in australia beardy vet he's been researching bearded dragons for a long time and He's got videos of them diving down into burrows and things like that. So they definitely make use of burrows as well. I think a lot during um, the colder seasons as well for that more insulating factor. Um, but yeah, they, they use their whole environment like a lot of reptiles do, that especially bearded dragons. They can climb, they can dig, they can run. So they're going to use everywhere that they can. They're not just, you know, stuck on a, uh, a piece of tile or something. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's yeah, exactly. They're not just stuck on a piece of tile. It's very interesting. You don't, um, even when you imagine them in the wild, because of how a lot of keepers are keeping them, you start to imagine them in a specific way in the wild too. And so yeah. hearing about all these different things is almost like, oh, wow, we're far further off than uh, than we think. Do you keep any bearded dragons? Uh, not anymore. I had one. Uh, she just passed away, a, a, um, a pygmy bearded dragon, or, or Henry, Henry Lawson and I, and I had her for 14 years. So... She just just passed away recently of old age. So yeah, amazing animals, but uh, yeah, not not any currently. Okay, and what was the species you um, you snapped me a picture of right before we right before we started? Oh, um, I forgot to mention that. That's the one that I missed. It's right next to me. It's a, a mountain dragon. So okay. they're kind of like a miniature bearded dragon that's a lot more active, and they're like little uh, little. They're, they're crazy. <laughs> they're all over the place. Are, and are, I don't know, are Rankin dragons from Australia as well? Yeah, I think that's what you guys call the, the bearded dragon I had, the, the Henry Lawson I. They're okay. like a smaller species of bearded dragon. Smaller yeah. species, yeah. Okay. So this the, the mountain dragon is not that either. No, no, they're even smaller. Different, different genus. They're um they're actually the one of the smallest dragons in Australia and then the most southern agamid in the world. So uh, adult size over there, they're only about that big, they're tiny. And um, they're little spiky things, and um, they live obviously in, in the mountain sort of areas on rocky outcrops and stuff. So yeah, they're very cool little animals. Very very cool. Yeah, I wonder if there's um, if any of them are are floating around in the hobby. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it'd be pretty rare over there. They're they're even rare here. They're, not a lot yeah. of people breed them, and um, they're not very long lived. I don't think either. Like a lot of smaller gamets. So um, okay. if you have any over there, that'd be pretty cool. But I've never surprised. even I've never even heard of them, so I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, cool. Okay. So maybe yeah. So uh, um, the blue tongue skinks that you're keeping outside, we will talk about that for a minute as well. Um, yeah. How many species are you keeping out? Or is it species or locales? No. So I've got two species um, okay. that I can keep outside well here, and that's your eastern blue tongue and your blotched blue tongue. I get eastern blue tongues, you know, in my backyard here. They they literally live in this area, naturally. Uh, your blotched blue tongue lives a little bit further south, about two or three hours south of where I am. And uh, they're one of the most cold tolerant um, in that group of animals. They're very dark in color with some very pretty colors uh, between all the, the black that they have. And uh, they're my favorites. They're they are, really uh, pretty and uh, really tough. What, what, do you, what did you call them? Sorry, the, the blotched, right? The alpine blotched? 
I've unboxed Blue Tank. Yeah, I actually, that's one of the questions I had. So through watching your videos, that's also my favorite just visually. Um, yeah. Absolutely stunning. What is the, and sorry to cut you off there, but I'll, I'll let you jump back fine. to that one. But how, how uh, what what is the difference in uh, uh, temperament or behavior between those guys and all the other Blue Tongues that are more commonly seen? Because I don't even, I like, those are pretty rare here on our side as well, I think. Yeah, overseas they're extremely rare, but um, yeah, they're definitely my favourite of the whole group. They're um, I think they're the prettiest, but they also are extremely cold tolerant. So it can snow where they come from. It's they come from the Blue Mountains, which is wow. really okay. one of the coldest places in Australia. Okay, and uh, that's why they're so dark in colour to help absorb more sun and um, live in that harsh environment. But between each other, they're actually quite friendly animals. So they can cohabitate very, very well, whereas most blue tongues will kind of just try and rip each other apart. They're not very friendly at all. But um, the blotched blue tongues seem to get along really quite well. So for those reasons, they make a really good captive animal to keep. And um, they usually tame right down, get very friendly. And they're absolute garbage units. They'll eat anything you give them pretty much. <laughs> yeah. they, they very rarely refuse a meal. So more yeah, than other more than other blue tongues? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Some can be picky with certain things, but the blotchies will just take down anything pretty much. <laughs> very, very cool. Okay. Um, and, and then so when you are keeping them outside, how, how are you sort of keeping them? Is it uh, groups? Like you are saying, they're communal. Is it groups, multiple, uh, multiple pairs or just pair per enclosure? Yeah, it, it depends really. The general rule, and I usually follow this for the majority of reptiles or lizards in general, is... I'll have one male because obviously yes. males can get yes. territorial, defensive, want to fight. One male and then multiple females. So at the moment, I've typically got pairs or trios uh, together. And um, yeah, I just have them in my outdoor pits or my other uh, enclosed areas out there. And um, yeah, they, they do well together. It's, it's really enjoyable. And do you keep them outside year-round? Yeah, yeah. You so where I live, in. yeah, where I live... Um, Again, being a little bit north of um, where they naturally occur, it doesn't even get as cold as where they're from. So they, they thrive out here, especially during the coldest part of winter, which is only a few degrees Celsius. I'm not sure. Do you guys use Celsius? We use Celsius, yeah. Oh, uh, the Americans yeah. use Fahrenheit, but we use, yes, uh, we yes. use Celsius as well, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, so you're, yeah, like, yeah, guess, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah it, it gets down to about four or five degrees Celsius here at the lowest point. And uh, yeah, the, the blotch blue tongues don't care at all. They're, they're just at home in that sort of weather. Um, and then the eastern blue tongues are here naturally as well. So they, they tolerate it well as, as well. Okay. And, and, and the, the, do they do blue tongues kiss roommates? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, basically, as soon as autumn kicks in, which is, you know, late March and then in the following months there, it'll really start to cool off. They'll usually retreat into some sort of hide or burrow. And then you basically never see them until, you know, October rolls around, really. And, um, and then they're coming back out and they'll start breeding and going through all that process again. That's very cool. Uh, is it harder to, well, so first of all, are you adding the burrows and the hides in or are they, or do they scavenge and like make their own burrows while they're out there? Um, they, they will make their own, uh, which is what I used to do quite a long time ago. But I find it better now if I make a designated sort of spot for them. So what I do in my outdoor enclosures is I make a literal box and I fill it with um, cool. hay or straw or anything that'll you know insulate it quite a bit that they can bury inside. 
And uh, they'll usually seek that out because it's going to be a dry area that's away from rain and any other moisture or anything like that. It's going to be maybe a little bit warmer. And they'll usually seek that out. They'll bury into there and um, stay in there the whole winter. And it works really, really well. The biggest problems you'll get with reptiles here in Australia uh, during that brumation period is actually from uh, water and getting rained on and things like that. Mm. They need to have a dry but cool place. Um, any sort of humidity in there that's when you know a lot of problems start you get scale rot you'll get respiratory infections which is a big one and um it can be very hard to detect as well because they're cold they're not really moving around anyway but um they can be slowly withering away without you knowing how do you how do you how do you fight that how do you fight the burrows not getting rained on or uh so literally the the brumation boxes I've made are, are weatherproof, so they don't let, allow any water to get inside them. It's a literal box with a huge lid on it. So, but then they, how do how do they get inside? There's just a little entry hole that they can sort of go into, and okay. um, the whole, the rest of it's all completely covered. Yeah. So yeah. is it is it hard to is it hard to spot them when they're in those outdoor uh, enclosures? Uh, it depends if I'm keeping on top of the weeds or not. Um, because obviously being outside, it's natural ground for the most part. It just I everything grows, that, yeah. and they love it though. They love that that whole uh, dense sort of jungle in there. But um, I usually try to keep them well pruned and only grow the plants I want growing in there. So I have it set up in a way where they can be on display and I can see them for the most part. They obviously have little areas they can hide and retreat, which are very important. Um, but generally, yeah, they are quite easy to see if the weather's nice, of course. If the weather's not nice, they're usually going to be hiding and not want to bother coming out. <laughs> yeah. Are, is there any plants that you can grow that they eat? Yeah, for sure. So yeah. the, the blue tongue specifically, they'll eat a lot of the native weeds and things that grow around. So we have um, dandelions and things like that. And I just throw those in there, let them grow, and uh, they'll pick them off as they see fit. And yeah. um I do a bit of that in there, mostly those natural little weeds because they look natural as well to the environment. I don't like having a, a veggie patch growing inside my enclosure. Yeah, I think yeah. it looks a bit bit how you're going. But, yeah, the natural sort of stuff works really well. That's very, very interesting. Um, and then, oh, yeah, that's, I actually just I just thought of this question, but it actually was already written. Uh, do you have any native plants that live in kids' lake? Okay. Wow, I, I actually thought this through more than I thought I did. <laughs> cool okay um so it's just the blue tongue things you're keeping outside then uh, yeah and the, turtles, and, the yeah. and the turtles okay yeah, yeah um so what about the igernia depressa yep how do you keep those uh they're literally in this enclosure right here i don't know if you can see them all too well but uh i'll move this up for you yeah well, that way um so they're pretty uh, simple to keep really uh, nice warm spot for them and again looking at their natural environment they like living in you know cracks of bark in hollow logs and trees and things like that and so that's what i've replicated again i'm very lucky i've been able to source some natural gum uh, hollow logs so just put those in there lizards in uh, a bit of heat and <laughs> it's pretty well that simple um obviously good lighting and uh, I've also added in some extra bits of bark and things because they really like to wedge themselves inside a surface. That's why they're all spiky all over, of course. Yeah. And um, makes them feel very safe and it actually makes them come out more. The funny, funny thing is, I think uh, zoos suffer with this as well a bit. They want animals to be on display for the public so they take out all the hides so the public can see them. Right. Then they're scared out of their mind. They get issues and it uh, becomes a massive problem. 
But I find a lot with reptiles, if you give them a abundance of hides and places to feel secure, that they'll be more likely to actually be out on display because they can very easily just tuck away if they feel scared and then come back out. So uh, done it with these guys and um, yeah, it's working great. I've got a little baby in there. First time I've ever bred them. So I'm very excited about that. <laughs> That's awesome. Congrats. Is it, and they're, they're one of the smaller species of Agurnia, correct? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's quite a few species of Agurnia here in Australia, but the uh, spiny tail group are probably my favorites. And um, yeah, there's these guys and the two or three other species, different color forms. And um, yeah, they're just such cool little tanks. I love them. <laughs> yeah. And, and they're live bearers as well. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. And, and then I assume communal since you said the baby's still in there. Yeah. It's strange though, because they have their little family groups and their little family units, but uh, if they kick someone out or they reject someone, you try and add a different animal in, they will absolutely beat the crap out of them. They are absolutely savage. They'll, they'll kill another animal. One of the ones I've actually got, um, before I had them, it was housed with a bunch of other ones and they actually tore both of her front hands off because they rejected her from the group. Wow. And um, yeah, so when I got her, she was in pretty uh, horrible looking shape, but um, just goes to show how nasty they can be if they don't like someone. Um, but when you have a group that works together well, then they get along perfectly. They cuddle with each other all day and yeah, they'll breed and have their own little family in there. It's quite sweet. Yeah. And it's, that's really interesting that they're, I don't know if the, the smart is the right word, but they have the, the train of thought to be able to say like, this is my tribe. You're not a part of it anymore. You're out or, uh, you know, coming into like pack mentality, I guess almost. Yeah. I don't know how they know, but yeah, it's very strange. That's very interesting. Are they, um, are they insectivores or, um, uh, like, yeah, sorry, are they insectivores? <laughs> Primarily. Yeah. I, I have heard of people giving them you know, salads and greens and things. They will eat a little bit of that, but primarily they're going to be looking for the insects. That's what they, they really love. And they are very fun to feed. They, they will just scoff that scoff down any sort of bugs they can find. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, I don't have any experience with them either, but there's, there is a species. I can't remember which species of Ukrainia that I've seen um, um, at, a, at a store that, uh, uh, that I work at, but um, they, they would be hiding all day, pretty much never come out. And then crickets would go in and like oh, this, yeah. they'd, they'd be right out. But I think they were a different. What color are the ones that you have? Um, I mean, I, so the, you know the, the presser are the, the gray, gray colored ones. Yeah, no. So, the thing is with the, the whole group is they used to all be called Agonia depressor. Okay. And then as time's gone on, they've split them off into their own separate species. So uh, there's two different sorts of red ones. I, I work with, I've worked with all the species except Eos. Um, so the more orange looking ones are Epsisolus and they're really cool. Um, okay. Obviously like what a cool looking animal. And then there's also the, the Signitos, I believe it's called. And they're more of a, like a brick red color. Um, but they're all essentially the same type of, um, yeah, there you go. They're all essentially the same sort of animal, except the red ones live in rocks, whereas the gray ones live in trees. Oh yeah. Okay. So there are a little more arboreal then. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Is, is this, is this more similar to that's yeah, that's what I've got. Yeah. The depressor. Got. Okay. Very, very cool. Mm. Oh, pygmy spiny tail skanks. Okay. No, this is not at all what the ones I've seen. I mean, they did look. They had the same body yeah. shape and, and and the same spiny tail, but they were a, a larger, uh, more brown uh, species. It sounds like um, Hosmer skink. 
to me. They have a they're kind of like them, but with a longer tail. Oh, sorry, what's the name? Hosmer's skink. H O S M E R S. Hosmer's. Yeah. Yes. This. Yeah. They're really cool as well. Oh, maybe not. Oh no, that Gigi skink. Yeah, that's what. Gigi, that's the one. That's yeah, the one. Yeah. Uh, there we go. That's the one. Okay. Yeah. So the depressor, the Hosmers, and the Gigi's are all your your main sort of spiny tail skinks. And there's Cunninghams okay. as well, but they're a bit less spiky. <laughs> but the they, Hosmers Gigi's... are kind of like a giant depressor. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Cool. And then the uh, the Gigi's here. Yeah, it is here. Gigi's are also a Gurnia then. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Very. Very cool. What a cool species. Um. Do you like the like? Have you, you said you've worked with with all of them? Do you are you still only working with this species because it's the your favorite one, or is it just um just by chance? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. No, I love all of them. They're just the ones that I actually had the. The chance to actually get some myself the others i've worked with um through uh at the zoo so okay great, yeah they're, they're still there and they're they're awesome but uh they're quite rare to come across in as a private keeper and very expensive too um so i had the opportunity to get these guys and they're actually some of the less pricey ones but i'm um, still just as cool as all the rest <laughs> that's yeah 100 percent. The, just the, the spikes on them and 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 even actually i've never really seen um the ones you have up, up close before like the picture i just saw um mm. it's almost like there's a white speckling and gray and like there's there's some patterning in there it's, it's interesting yeah they can vary quite a lot some can have some orange spots and things and others can have silver color to their head like an actual metallic sort of look it's really really cool there's a lot of variation in them that you wouldn't expect for a gray lizard <laughs> awesome okay um so we're, we're coming up to about the four, uh, 45 minute mark here um which I usually like to keep it around 45 minutes an hour. So I'm going to jump off the Agurnia really quickly because I yep. do want to get a chance to at least chat about the Boys Forest Dragon for for a little bit before <laughs> before we get off here. Um, what what's it like keeping them? Are they like I, I, that question is like so vague, but it's they're such an interesting species to me. What's it like keeping them? Yes. So here in Australia, obviously, we have a lot of cool reptiles, but we don't have anything that's that's like an iguana or anything like that. Yeah. Nothing that's that's sort of rainforest primeval looking sort of animal and except for the Boyds. So they're kind of like a holy grail species here for a lot of people. Um, they're, they're quite common now, but for the longest time, like everyone just went nuts for Boyds. So I always wanted to keep them and um, I eventually got the right license. They're on that ne next license up, okay. the advanced license. Yeah. Um, so I got that and then um, I was able to actually purchase some from a, a friend up in Queensland. So um, they're incredible species. They're very different to a lot of reptiles. They don't thermoregulate. Um, that's that one was... big thing with them. They're what's called a thermoconformer. So they just take on the environment around them and um, accept it pretty much. Uh, the only exception is if a female's uh, heavily gravid, she'll sometimes go and bask just to cook those eggs a little bit more. That's the only sort of difference. Um, but in the environment they come from, it's very, very stable, tropical North Queensland rainforest. So they live under the canopy where it's quite cool. Usually stays between 20 to 30 degrees Celsius in that sort of range and very humid. And uh, it's very consistent up there typically as well. So they sort of just hang out and um, sit on a branch and look pretty all day. <laughs> if an insect runs by, then they'll dive down and grab it, sit it back up on the branch and uh, keep looking pretty. So 
they're just a very cool animal indeed. And I've been fortunate enough to breed them for the last five or six years now, I think. So yeah, they're, they're very cool. And the eggs need to be incubated quite low as well. Only about 20, 19, 20 degrees Celsius in order to hatch them. And how long does it take? It varies. It, it, that's the interesting thing too. So they breed sort of middle to late winter and then they'll have their first clutch soon after that. And then that clutch I've experienced it taking about 175 days or so, but they can have multiple clutches in a season. They'll have five or six, my female anyway. And so that first clutch will be at about 175 days to hatch. But the last clutch she'll lay, which is closer to end of spring, summer, they'll only take 90 to 100 days to hatch. Wow. Um, okay. Just due to that temperature shift through the that, season, I think. Could, so it's yeah. it's very interesting. Um, so these days, I don't even think about waiting for the days or whatever. I just put them in the incubator and then I just check it every every week or so until they hatch i don't really think about it anymore <laughs> yeah yeah definitely i uh yeah well after six years well before i continue with that first of all i want to say i just asked you a super super vague question and you gave me the perfect the most perfect answer for the vaguest <laughs> question i don't know how you pulled it off but that's somehow that was the answer to the question i was asking you said how many clutches sorry per per, per year i've had up to six clutches before now i usually have four to six eggs per clutch and what's the they, intervals between them? Um, not too sure. Usually, you know, three weeks or so, I'd say. Wow. Okay. Between each one. So, yeah, those females are machines. They just keep pumping them out. It's pretty crazy what they can actually do in a season. How many females do you have? Uh, I've got two, but only one that I consistently breed. I've got another one that I just raised up and kept myself as it's more of a pet. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. But one's one's more than enough if you're trying to breed forest dragons. They they just absolutely pump them out. I have to not incubate most of the eggs I get because it's just too many. Oh wow. Okay. Is there not a very high demand for them where you are? Well, it does become a bit difficult again with the licensing system mm -hmm. because it is harder to get to that second level. So it makes the pool of people that you can sell to a lot smaller. So you don't want to oversaturate the market and um, you know not sell anything not so, and then yeah. end up with having to keep keep all of them uh do yeah, you keep so your I'm, pair together year round oh sorry go ahead no go ahead what were you gonna say oh no i was just gonna say i only i usually find homes for the animals before i even hatch them out that Wait. way i know exactly what i i need to do but um yeah i do keep the pair year round together typically they usually don't have any issues the, the only yeah. main issue they would have is the male just relentlessly wants to breed he's yeah he's like a rabbit he doesn't stop <laughs> of course of course and does this uh, is there a brumation for them as well or is it because they're so far from so far north that it's kind of tropical all the time where they're from yeah being a species that's closer to the equator like that they don't really brumate per se they just slow down a little bit during the cooler months and they can okay. take cold temperatures as well like i don't heat them during winter or anything here it drops right down to you know the the teens or so um, oh, okay. and they'll usually just sit on their branch and uh, not really move for a few weeks uh, maybe have a bit of a drink and i just don't feed them much during that time uh, just to be safe and um, yeah, it's always worked perfect for me and um it's great because it's an animal that does slow down in winter, but they're still perfectly on display. You can look at them all the time. Yeah, it's sitting the time. right there. Yeah. So that, that's, that's why they're one of my favorite things to keep. That's one of the beautiful things about them, the the display thing. Uh, do, do you have, or how beautiful they are when they're on display? It's almost like you have a dinosaur or a dragon sitting, uh, yeah, sitting there. Yeah, literally, yeah. 
Yeah. They are, they are a very prehistoric species, and I believe the rainforest they're from is the oldest rainforest on Earth. So oh, they wow, are okay. truly a prehistoric animal. That It's just really cool to be able to have that in your lounge room. <laughs> that's, that's very cool. Have you ever been up there to their native range and sort of seen their wild habitat? I feel I'm hopefully, like I'm hopefully going in the middle of this year. I'm finally okay. going to make it up there. I used to, obviously, I used to live in North Queensland, like I said, where I was born, but okay. um, that would have been a few hours from where they naturally occur. And I was only young at the time. So I didn't right. obviously think about looking for them. I regret it every day. But yeah, hopefully this year I'm going to go up there and finally see them. But uh, on the coast here, we have uh, their closest cousin, which is the angle headed dragon, which is kind of like a smaller, less exaggerated version of them. And, right. Um, Got Gonocephalus. No, they're uh, in the same genus. I think they used to be Gonocephalus. Um, oh. but yeah, Southern Angle-Headed Dragon, they're called. They're really okay. cool as well. Uh, but you get them in the subtropical rainforests that are only about half an hour away from me here. So I've got my practice finding them. And uh, them. now it's time to find the big ones. That's <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so cool and super exciting. I really like good luck. I really hope you find them. Um, I wonder if they're as, are they the, like, fairly docile with handling as well uh captive ones yeah they can be they're, they're not like a bearded dragon though they'll typically want to yeah. move off and do their own thing but m mine yeah. don't bite me or anything like that i can hold them they're fine uh i'm sure wild ones would be pretty grumpy but i guess i'll just have to go and find out <laughs> it's very interesting they sound a lot like um i keep mountain horn dragons oh uh, yeah so yep. from the akinsora species and they sound a lot like them which they also look very prehistoric but it's like the boyd's the boys take it to another level yeah. of prehistoric. It's yeah. Uh, they're, they're, they're so cool. Um, but yeah, maybe, maybe one day we'll have to do a whole boys forest uh, dragon episode because I have so, so yeah, many more sure. questions to ask you. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Sweet. Anyway, thank you very much for doing this. Thank you for coming on. I really, really appreciate it. It's once again, it's a pleasure to meet you, even if it's online. Um, yeah. Uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to do this again. Can you let, everybody know where they can find you yeah for sure so if you want to uh, see what i'm up to here in australia check out the youtube channel it's just coops reptiles it's pretty simple pretty straightforward i'm not very good at coming up with creative names <laughs> um same thing on uh facebook i've got a facebook page which i sort of regularly update with things that are going on again just coops reptiles and then if you want to follow me on instagram it's coop vdw um and yeah that's the best place to find me but yeah thank you very much for having me on it's great to meet you great to talk to you and uh yeah hopefully it was fun for you <laughs> for sure yeah it was so much fun and we spoke about like the coolest species and you know like i said australia of course is a is a dream and um keeping outdoors or being able to keep outdoors is something that's super intriguing to me that i also hope to one day move away from this cold and be able to do <laughs> yeah. so um so yeah man that there was it was an incredible uh, incredible um conversation thank you very much no worries. I only just scratched the surface. There's plenty more to go over in, in the future. Don't you worry. <laughs> awesome. That's that's what I like to hear. Part two coming soon then. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. No worries. Awesome. Uh, see you in a second then. Uh, perfect. Thank you very much to everyone else for listening. Go give Cooper a follow. All of his links will be in the description as always. Uh, I'm Daffy's Reptiles on all social media platforms. Platforms. <laughs> Daffy's Roundtable for the past. Thank you for listening once again and see you on the next one.